I am instantly transported back in time as I open the package. I see two cassette tapes. One has a blue cover and the other is golden. Wow! These are just like the ones I used to play music from when I was a kid in the 80s. You know, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Bon Jovi. When did I last hold a cassette tape in my hands? I can't even remember. But these tapes, they don't contain music. They are interview tapes from 1977, sent to me from the other side of the Atlantic by Professor William Brevda, who has researched the life of Harry Kemp, also known as the Poet of the Dunes. Any minute now, I will hear Hazel's voice, for the first time. I wonder how it sounds like. Low and brooding, or high and bubbly, or maybe something in between. Will her illness have already taken a toll on her speech? Will I understand what she says? I'll soon find out, and so will you. But first things first. I need to find a cassette tape player from somewhere to listen to the tapes. Where on earth will I find one from? This is the tenth and final episode of Finding Hazel Hawthorne. If you're here for the first time, I recommend you start from the beginning. You'll learn who Hazel Hawthorne is and how someone like me ended up here, trying to find a cassette tape player. Finland is known as the happiest country in the world. I'm secretly convinced it's partly because of our public libraries. We have at least one in every municipality, more than one in many. We're a nation of 5.5 million people, and we visit libraries 50 million times every year. That's nine visits per capita. Libraries are awesome, not only for books and reading and finding new horizons, but for the amazing range of other services they offer. We're talking 3D printing, sewing machines, ukuleles, and seasonal sports and culture tickets, just to name a few. But today... I'm interested in hearing Hazel's voice on the interview tapes. I walk into my local library, sign in, enter the booth where I can play and digitize the tapes, put on the headphones, and start to listen. Edmund Wilson was out on the dunes in the owning uh, house up there, and uh, I was a protege of his living up the beach. That was, uh, I first met him out there on the shore, and... Uh, he always he had a way of the people who your people he was interested in of wanting to improve them. He would give lectures to them. He and I used to walk walk to see the sunset on the beach. He always gave me long lectures. It was wonderful. I'd ask him one question. I would set him on. I would ask him about. I remember Maupassant. And he went on and on about Robert and Maupassant and the influence of one on the other, or whatever it was, you know. Mm -hmm. I sometimes he'd lecture on contemporary poets. It was great. Well, Eden was in residence there, and he invited E. E. Cummings down for the weekend. And he, every time he did that, he'd send a message to me wherever I was. Come, come for the weekend, it would be good for you. <laughs> It's her, telling us how she got to know Edmund Wilson at the old life-saving station in Peacot Hill in the late 20s. 
The two of them took long walks on the shore, and Wilson loved to lecture Hazel on anything and everything. Hazel also reveals that she indeed was his protégé. All of my sources point in that direction, but here she is, saying it out loud herself. Hazel's speech, by the age of 75, is a little hard to understand, I notice, but not impossible at all. So this is how the illness affected her speech, slowing it down and adding a small quiver to it. I continue to listen. When I came back the next summer up here, I discovered the dunes, the shacks out there, and the old lighting station where the O'Neills were. They were there in the summer months. And uh, I had met them in 1918, and I went back in the summer of 1920, and they told me, I told them I was looking with my first husband, looking all up and down the coast for something like a dream I had of a place on the back shore in the ocean, a shanty. And they said, go right out to Peacon Hill. The Coast Guards rent shacks and say, we sent you. And they were sure that you had one for the summer, so I did. And here Hazel tells us the story of her finding the dunes. I wonder if the story is true. Did she really walk the coast of Cape Cod and find the dunes in 1920? Or is this only a good story she liked to tell? She always enjoyed walking, to follow the footsteps of Henry David Thoreau on the Cape. I conclude the walking must have been a meaningful experience to Hazel, because she kept on talking about it for years. Decades even. The story is printed in several interviews, repeated over and over, so I guess we'll just have to take Hazel's word for it. It's part of her legacy, her connection to the Cape. Thinking of stories and connections, I somehow suspect this is going to be a special year for my project on Hazel. My wish of spending more time in the dunes is about to come true. Piccadilly Trust has granted me a one-week residency in one of the dune shacks. <laughs> I will actually get to sink my toes in the warm sand, walk where she used to walk, and see the sun rise and set in the dunes, just like she did. Ha! <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. Your wishes may come true sooner than you think. For me, days, weeks, and months pass by. I wake up, walk the dog go to work, and then it's time to travel again. I'm back in the US. It's been a year since my first visit to New England. This time, I'm brave enough to rent a car to visit several small towns for their libraries and courthouses. I meet Hazel's grandchild, Sue Pomerantz, on a parking lot of a coffee place in Upper Cape. We greet each other warmly. It's been a year since we met for the first time, and I'm excited to meet again. But Sue wants to show me something. She opens the trunk of her car, and I see a large cardboard box full of paper. Some of it looks really old. These are Hazel's papers, she says. You can take them to Finland if you want. I stare at the box, and I stare at Sue. I'm so surprised that I struggle to find words. But finally, I managed to say thank you. 
We moved the box to the trunk of my rental car, and in the following night, I don't get much sleep. The motel I'm staying in is pretty dodgy, and I don't feel at ease. But more importantly, I spend the night organizing the papers and gasping out of excitement as I flick through the notes, letters, poems, and unpublished manuscripts. There are heaps of newspaper clippings Hazel has saved of people she was interested in. Some of the legal documents I've always wondered about. Well, here they are. This is it, I think to myself. Here in this dodgy motel in Upper Cape, in the middle of the night, alone, is as close as I can get to Hazel without meeting her in person. I see stacks of notes and scribblings about writing, about being a woman, on being on the dunes, about solitude. She writes, I had as soon lie on this ground as with a lover, walking on the upper shore, walking here alone. You give yourself to the earth as completely as it is possible to mingle, short of death. Then I lie down on the race point road in a little wood filled with gentle evening gold light. The sundew, I see, has white buds. Moss is caked in blocks under these clean pines. Gulls fly over, their night flight inshore. Good. I am safe from love. Ah. <sighs> I can't wait for my dune week to begin. Next morning I meet Sue in the local library. We spread out the papers on a table in a small meeting room and go over the piles together. I'm out of breath merely because of excitement. I didn't really have time to read that much last night, so we agree that I can take a thick pile of notes and manuscripts with me as I head to Provincetown and later to Finland. After a few days of hanging out in beautiful and friendly Provincetown, my dune week finally begins. Before I know, I'm standing on the porch of Zara's shack, looking around, smiling to myself. I was granted a residency in Zara's, a shack that was rebuilt in 1990 after it burnt down in a fire. I can't see the ocean from the shack but it only takes a short walk across the dune to the shore. I'm close to both of Hazel's shacks, Thalassa, the one I visited last summer, and now I'm also close to Euphoria, which I've only seen in photos and from a distance. I breathe in the hot summer air, close my eyes, and continue to smile. Solitude, the dunes, and Hazel's original documents. All mine for a full week. I imagine Hazel here in the dunes, how she would walk around barefoot, take long walks along the shore, observe the flora and fauna around her, take note of everything, and then sit in front of the window of her shack, document her thoughts and observations to diary entries and notes, perhaps even a poem or a short story. I soon get into a rhythm where I wake up early with the rising sun and go to bed as soon as darkness falls. In the mornings, I get up, put the kettle on and wait for the water to boil. 
The floor of the shack is cold in the mornings and I'm so glad I brought woolen socks. Most days start off with clear blue skies and cool air, which later turns into scorching sunshine. Every morning I step outside to sip my coffee on the steps of the shack. The air smells dry. There's nothing but the wind, birds and dunes to listen to. I never know how long I sit there with my coffee, and it doesn't matter, as time seems to move differently here in the dunes. Every day, after morning coffee, I pick up a pile of Hazel's papers, move on to the day bed on the porch, and start to read and take notes. I'm almost 4,000 miles away from home. But because of how wonderful Provincetown and its people are, I get visitors to the dunes. Someone hikes over just to meet me. Someone comes over to draw. Someone to chat. We share lunches, dinners and coffees. People who pop by, I've met through this project, most of them in Instagram. One evening a thought hits me. This must be how it was for Hazel. She was often alone in her dune shack, to enjoy the solitude, to write and hear her own voice. But the people who visited offered balance, kept her in touch with the world, shared a drink or a meal, offered conversation, an exchange of thoughts, or even intimacy. Here is where she met most of her lovers, I'm sure. Away from town, surrounded by the sand, wind and sea. Here she was free from all the expectations and societal norms, living on her own terms, her own life. I get it now. I knew it before, but now I feel it at the very core of my being. To spend time alone, to stop and meet one's own thoughts and to find comfort in solitude is key to understanding who you are. Maybe that's why Hazel had this inexplicable magnetism to her. It seems to me people were simply drawn to her, like I am too. On my last full day in the dunes, Harriet arrives for a visit. You may remember her from the first episode. She's the one who is known by the name Jerusha. She's the one who wrote and recorded the song about Hazel. As Harriet and I get to know each other over a light lunch, we hear a yoo-hoo from the outside. Before I know it, we've been invited to visit Euphoria the shack Hazel named after how she felt in the dunes, euphoric. The couple staying in Euphoria this week had heard of my project and decided to come over and make sure I get to visit Hazel's shack. I'm over the moon. I've learned by now that it's easiest to walk in the sand either with bare feet or thick socks. The midday sun has turned the sand pretty hot, so I put on pink socks and grab a large sun hat a friend in town lent me, and Harriet and I head towards Euphoria. As we slowly walk in the deep sand, we don't talk. We fall into our own thoughts. We share the journey, but respect each other's personal space, and fall into a rhythm of our own, both of us. I start to think of a story I heard. When Hazel turned 90 years old, 
she could no longer walk in the sand. She had not visited the dunes in a while. She moved around in a wheelchair, and her speech was very hard to follow. But her mind was clear, and through her eyes one could still see the sparkle, the glint of a curious mind. For her birthday, her friends decided to surprise Hazel. They would take her to the dunes one more time. On the 18th of October in 1991, Hazel sits in the front seat of one of the beach taxis of Art's Dune Tours. Art has donated the truck and the driver for the afternoon. Hazel is small and fragile, all white-haired and shaky. As the entourage drives through Snail Road, making its way to the dune trail, Hazel cannot stop smiling. She has done this journey to the dunes so many times before. She always preferred to walk, even when she needed a cane to steady her in the deep sand. In a car, she says, she cannot hear and smell the dunes. But today is different, and she knows it. They drive as close to euphoria as they can. While others get out of the truck, Hazel sits and waits patiently. Friends lean in from the front window, chatting with her, smiling and laughing. Everyone's spirits are cheery and light. It's a relatively warm day. A few clouds travel the sky, but a bright October sun pierces them. People wear t-shirts and jeans, but Hazel is veiled in a polo shirt, sweater, cardigan and white pants. She even has a hat and woolen socks on, but most importantly, she wears a necklace, colorful wooden pearls for the special occasion. Two of the guys construct a chair with their hands and lift her up. They slowly start to trek towards Euphoria. To walk up a dune hill alone without anything to carry is rather heavy, and to walk up while carrying someone is quite a task. They take breaks. As they make it up the hill to Euphoria, Hazel is seated to a director's chair on the deck where they all stay for a while, to admire the dunes, to chat with each other, and the person who was staying in the shack at the time. Hazel smiles and laughs. She takes it all in, thoroughly enjoying herself. Once they move inside, Hazel's chair is placed in front of the window, where she has sat for countless hours in the past six decades. To gather her thoughts, to write, and admire the vast openness of the Atlantic Sea. The desk in front of the window is clean and organized, with a few papers on it. Beds are neatly made. The bookshelf on the right side of the table is half full. Books lean on each other casually, just waiting to be picked up. Despite the happy chatter, Hazel falls quiet every now and then, gently descending to her own world of memories looking outside the window, her eyes filled with perfect content and calm. She's home, and anyone can see it. When it's time to go, her friends gently lift her up in the director's chair, carry her down the steps of the shack and start heading back to the truck. Hazel holds on to the armrests of the chair. There isn't really much to say. With every step, 
the light happiness and calm fades away from Hazel's appearance. She knows this is goodbye. She won't return. People take turns to carry her, two at a time, step by step, walking away from euphoria. Hazel looks in the distance, not saying a word. As they get closer to the truck, and euphoria becomes merely a shape on top of a distant hill, laughter returns. Hazel got to spend time in the dunes, surrounded by friends, knowing that a new generation of dune dwellers will stay after she is gone. The work of the Queen of the Dunes is done. As I myself now walk up the hill towards Euphoria, climb the few steps to the deck of the shack, touch the shingles on the wall, open the door and step in, my mind quiets down into perfect clarity. I know Hazel's story deserves to be told. She needs pages to her story and covers to her book. For some reason, beyond any explanation I can think of, her story has landed with me. And that's okay. I'll take really good care of it. Remember the song you heard in the first episode? The song about Hazel? Well, Jerusha, who wrote and recorded the song, is right here with me in the shack. So the fact that, that she had this double name of two sacred plants really fascinated me. And I knew about hawthorn trees being sacred signs at the crossroads. And uh, the hazel is, of course, it's, it's used for dowsing, among other things, but it's also one of the early bee flowers. And, uh, and around New England, it's one of the first plants that you know comes into flower for the bees. So that's part of the inspiration of the song. But the circumstance was that we were staying at Euphoria, and I was with my husband, but he had jury duty. <laughs> so he was like commuting away for a few days to do jury duty. I was there, and it wasn't anything about being afraid, except of the weather. There was a big blow. And in euphoria, the whole entire shack completely is rattling and swaying in the wind. And the banshees were screaming. And it was, it was I love nature, but it was, it was a little unsettling. And Rick had left his guitar in the shack. So I was just singing just to sort of like stay grounded and, <laughs> and howling into the wind, you know, with the howling. Hazel's got the witch's wand, first crop for the bee. Hawthorne, she stands at the crossroad, white-crowned fairy tree. She bears flowers, fruits, and thorns, that's why she's still here. Wild old woman of wild places. After all these years, she wrote, Whatever value I've got comes from my relation to the dunes. I've tried to think my way into them. I'm still trying to. 
And every year I go and find them to get my heart in tune. The sweetest home I've ever had was a shack up on a dune. And I've had children, husbands, lovers leave their mark on me. But the dreamy look in my eye comes from gazing out to sea. So when I'm gone, when I'm dead, you might remember me. When you climb up on a dune and gaze out at the sea. They say the dunes are fairy mounds, and the old souls gather there. But when that northeast wind gets going, they might blow anywhere. Over the oaks and over the bogs and over the old pine groves. Cover the tracks and cover the trails and cover up all the roads. Thank you for giving me the chance to sing it. Well, thank you for singing it. And that just, you created it that night, that windy well, night, it was, and you were not afraid it anymore? It was like that other, the other tune, it's like, Hazel's got the witch's wand, instead of like, Hazel's got the witch's wand, first crop for the bee. So there's two different melodies, and the crickets and the birds that are on that recording. And there's also a little faint thing of Louis Armstrong's band that was because she wrote about, I don't know if she wrote or told me or where I got it, but it was like the memory of somebody had a Victrola and hearing just the little strains of floating wind-up Victrola jazz coming from over the, you know, over the dunes. So I wanted to recreate that. It feels good to finish the journey here in the dunes. I think I'm closer to understanding why this place was so meaningful to Hazel. In the last decades of her life, she rented out her shacks to make sure more people could experience the unique beauty of the dunes and simplicity of living in a shack at land's end, where one can put America behind you, as Thoreau famously said. Hazel understood the transformative power the dunes hold. I definitely feel it. Staying here, if only briefly, one is transported into this exquisite unreality, like Hazel used to say. Exquisite unreality. She was here for solitude and clarity. I'm here for Hazel. And more people will follow, whatever their reasons, whatever they're looking for. Maybe Hazel didn't achieve fame and success with her writing because the time was not right for her. Or maybe there was no market for her explorative and descriptive writing. I'm not saying fame and success are a measure of quality. I'm not saying her writing was exceptional or mediocre. 
or claim to offer an analysis of her texts at all. But I dare say she was remarkable. Unconventional. Complex. She lived a unique life as a frontrunner, freedom seeker, independent thinker, lover, mother, and writer. And she has inspired not only me, but generations of people before me. Maybe one day someone will study her writings, and my role is to make sure they can be found. I will continue to piece together the puzzle of Hazel's life. She will not be a woman forgotten by history. Her love for the dunes will live on. Thank you for listening to Finding Hazel, a podcast on the life of forgotten American writer Hazel Hawthorne. I'm working on a narrative nonfiction book on Hazel Hawthorne's life, and I am looking for a publisher in the U.S. Hazel's life is full of interesting stories, literary networks, unpublished manuscripts, and sharp observations on life, all of which I could not fit into this podcast. You, dear listener, can help me spread the word by sharing this podcast and following the journey in Instagram at Finding Hazel Hawthorne. Read more about the project on my website, FindingHazelHawthorne.com. This podcast is produced by Inkalesma and Essi Somaki, hosted by Inkalesma. Interview tapes from 1977, courtesy of Professor William Brevda. Hazel Hawthorne's notes cited with permission of the Hazel Hawthorne estate. Cape Cod audio by Christopher Suford from his album Cape Cod Soundscape Volume 1, available in iTunes. Thank you to Harriet Jerusha Arnoldi for the live performance of Hazel, all rights reserved by the artist. Theme song by Studio Le Bus. <laughs>